I'm Debbie Draby from the Clinical Excellence Commission, and I'm pleased you can join us for this four-part series with George Duros. This podcast is part two of a four-part series on Listen Up for Safety. In this segment on war on error, cognitive bias work, we have a conversation with George who describes the war on error and emphasizes how rather than we try and eliminate errors, we can focus on eliminating harm from errors. And he explores practical examples using system thinking and highlighting the importance of approaching clinicians with this humble curiosity to understand that the systems that they work in. And what's really critical in the conversation is the importance of being able to accommodate for biases and what George describes as nudges and fail-safes and and really practical examples how whilst we can't prevent errors, we can redesign systems to accommodate for those errors to minimise harm to patients. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Yeah, look, I think one of the things that that happens uh, is that when patient safety first came, uh, it was because of an article that was called um, To Err as Human. and that framed it as a um, a human error problem rather than a patient safety problem. So we've been on this war on error ever since. Um, and the whole cognitive bias thing, which sort of came out probably about 10 years ago with Pat Cross Carey. Um, and once again, medicine just sort of grabbed the, the wrong end of the stick. Uh, what most places do is they'll have a PowerPoint presentation or an online module sort of say, you know, these are the various types of cognitive biases, remember it and, uh, you know, don't fall prey to it. Um, but it hasn't actually worked. And the whole reason why that hasn't worked is that when uh, a cognitive bias Um, you can only apply it in hindsight as you're doing it you don't know what's going on and I'll I'll give you an example you know if you make a misdiagnosis someone would say ha premature closure you didn't think about it Um, but if you had thought something it could be this and you did a a test and that test ended up being um, you know negative someone could say ha you didn't think uh, you didn't choose wisely you you should have made up your mind it's obvious it was never going to be that so unless you land directly on the diagnosis every single time someone could accuse you of uh, not thinking enough or thinking too much uh, about it Um, and that's uh, sort of what we focus on, and that's the the personal pro- approach to cognitive bias, but that's not how other safety critical incidents uh, think about it. And I'll, and I'll give you uh, an example, which uh, which is just your car, if you've got a, a modern car, and I'll give you give you two examples. Um, uh, one is your blind spot. Um, in the olden days, uh, they would tell you to check your side mirror and check your blind spot, and you tend to forget your blind spot and there'd be accidents. And, you know, the old teaching was, you know, remember to check your blind spot. And you can sort of say that was premature closure. Uh, you, um, you know, uh, try harder next time. Um, the car industry, though, sort of thought, well, you know, we've been telling people to think about it harder for so many years and they're not doing it. They're not going to change. Why don't we put in some sensors to figure out whether something's uh, in your blind spot and then put a little flashing light in the side mirror? Because we know by looking at people work that 100 percent of people check their side mirror, but only 50 percent go on to their uh, check their uh, blind spot. And so if you actually give people what's called a nudge, which is 
given them the right information at the right time, they're going to make the right decision. So you can still make the error of not completing the blind spot um, by not looking at your blind spot, but it doesn't actually affect uh, patient safety. Um, so that's a, that's how you use you use the cognitive uh, you, you figure out what the cognitive bias is, but then you change the system to accommodate for a known co cognitive bias. Um, and another example in the car is uh, uh, the old thing of uh, when you door someone, when you open the door and a cyclist goes straight into it. They used to tell the um, uh, the drivers be more aware. They used to tell the cyclists be more aware, but it would still sort of happen. And, you know, you could use a cognitive bias, which is called um, uh, count, you know, creating a counterfactual, failure to uh, check for cyclists, you know, and there's there's the cause of your uh, thing, um, uh, of your problem. It was a failure to do something. Um, but again, that doesn't stop it from happening again. What the car company did is accept the fact that people have done this and will continue to do this, what they thought is, well, we've got sensors that know when you're sitting in your car. We have sensors that know when cars are uh, when something's coming up beside you, and we have sensors that can uh, and we can lock your uh, door automatically. So they came up with a, um, a computer program that when someone's sitting in the car seat and the car's stationary and something's coming up behind you, uh, that the doors automatically lock. Um, so with this thing, you can uh, you still can have the error of trying to open the door, but the door won't open and the person won't be hit. So the error happens, but patient harm doesn't happen. And that, that one's called a fail safe. And those two things, you know, nudges and fail safes, they're systems thinking. Uh, that's not trying to change the error. It's trying to prevent harm from, from happening. Well, uh, we think in medicine uh, uh, is a safe system is if that people are 100% uh, right 100% of the time um, because that's how we got through med school. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not actually a safe system. Um, and we're, we're a really a long way off from designing systems that, uh, that help us. Right now, if you ask anyone that uses, you know, for example, Cerner, CERNA doesn't really compensate for human failings. People are compensating for it uh, most of the time. And it'd be great if we could sort of turn that around. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, they're fantastic examples. And what, what you're describing there is we have a really good understanding of errors, um, but now it's around redesigning the systems to not prevent those errors because we know that they're inevitable and and that's natural to make mistakes, but it's more around how how does the system support those errors to ensure that that there's no harm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. of a like with pilots, what they do um, as part of their ongoing accreditation, every now and then there's a pilot who's just sitting behind them uh, and they just watch them. And at the end of their thing, they'll write down how many errors they made according to policy and all the rest. Mm. And on average, they make six errors an hour, but their systems are so well designed that none of it matters. Yeah, because uh, they're all caught or mitigated, um, and whereas we we don't have that. We haven't designed our systems that well, and and part of the the problem is that you know when 
the patient safety movement came up, uh, rather than engaging all the um, uh, psychologists and engineers to redesign our systems, we just thought, oh, we'll do it ourselves. Um, and we haven't really uh, changed too much in the last uh, 20 years from a patient. There's, we've made some small changes, but it's not like the airline industry or the, or the, uh, uh, the car industry uh, where they've made massive changes and massive improvements um, because we've been trying to uh, fix, we've been trying to fix the driver rather than trying to fix the car. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's been a real strong emphasis still in healthcare around the individuals rather yeah. than the environment that they're working in. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and in terms of um, how do you think that relates to, I know you've done a lot of work in supporting and developed a lot of resources to support M&M and M&M discussions. Um, to make them a safe space for learning and, and to use this lens that you're describing. Um, so would you mind, you know, just, just telling us a little bit about that in terms of how you think this all relates to M&Ms and how it can support M&M discussions? Um, yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm hoping you'll pop my videos up because I think showing the examples uh, yeah. is the easiest way yeah. to explain what's, uh, what's going on and the College of Emergency Medicine, which wants to set up um, uh, an M&M process, is also very keen uh, after viewing the videos that I, that I sent you. Yeah, yeah, and look, they were fantastic. Um, you know, such a great resource um, and really strong messaging in there around the importance of not blaming and understanding the context of error, um, which, you know, you gave really good good examples of that and where we often do get it wrong and, and get caught up in that blame game. But I guess we sort of have to change our mindset about what M&Ms are. Uh, traditionally, you know, uh, like the, the guy who invented M&Ms, a guy called Codman in the US was a surgeon. He used to go around to other surgeons' uh, notes, uh, declare them incompetent uh, for the errors that they they, they made. And, uh, and that was his way of trying to, um, you know, decrease harm. He ended up being booted out of his hospital because everyone else hated him. Um, so we, we've got to try and do it in a non-blame way. Um, one of the big problems is that we don't realise that we're blaming. We're unaware of the... Um, before, we were talking about the cognitive biases of clinical decision-making. Um, now I'm switching over to the cognitive biases of review, um, where, and, and much like every bias... We're unaware of it when we're doing it. Uh, we're unaware of hindsight bias, outcome bias, um, counterfactualism. We just look at the case and just go, yeah, here, that guy should have zigged instead of zag. Can everyone please um, zig instead of zagging? Okay, thank you. Uh, let's get back to work. And that's really what most M&Ms have, have been. Uh, they've been focused on the individual rather than the system, because quite often you're just told, or well, the system can't change, you've got to change. Um, and so, you know, it, even when people don't mean to, to blame, um, then, you know, if the take-home message is everyone, uh, can everyone try harder, it's sort of implying people aren't trying hard enough. Um, and that's what sort of leaves, you know, a bit of an uncomfortable feeling, um, you know, at the end of an M&M, even if it wasn't about you, you sort of feel for the person involved, uh, whoever they may be. Um, 
what we have to do different is we've got to realize that merely saying I'm aware of uh, hindsight bias doesn't actually make you immune to it. You actually have to do something different. Um, by the way, if you ever hear someone of I'm aware of uh, hindsight bias, but um, that's right up there with I'm not racist, but they're about to launch into a tirade, which is 100% hindsight bias. Yeah, absolutely. So what you have to do is something different than uh, just looking at the notes and deciding what the problem is. And that is based on something called the local rationality principle. Um, and that is uh, that people come to work to do the right thing by the patient and by the institution. Um, people, the decisions that people make uh, make sense to them, uh, otherwise I wouldn't have made them. Now, when you're looking back on an incident uh, where you know the outcome, uh, you can see when they um, zigged instead of zagged, what you've got to figure out is why it made more sense uh, to zag at that time. And so you actually have to go um, and have a chat with the people involved. And this is the biggest thing. You actually have to speak to all the people involved in an incident with uh, humble inquiry, with genuine curiosity of how it was that someone who's appropriately trained and wanted to do the right thing, how did the wrong thing happen? Um, and so you chat to them and uh, you keep on asking questions until you understand why what they did makes sense. If you stop short of understanding why they did what they did, that's when your fundamental attribution bias jumps in and you think, well, they're just stupid, they're just lazy, they're just sloppy. Um, the chances are they're not. Um, uh, so if you if you go in and you actually ask those questions with uh, uh, genuine humility, that's when you'll see all the systems issues just sort of pop up. You'll find out that, um, you know, that person was junior uh, and didn't know about that particular thing or that uh, they didn't escalate because the consultant that, that was on had shouted at them before um, or that the electronic medical record and the scan medical record, you know, don't work together um, or they never saw the paper uh, ambulance notes. Um, uh, you know, so that's the stuff that that sort of bubbles up when you actually speak to uh, to people. Um, and that's that's the key thing is to go in there. And, and the attitude you should have is less that of a detective trying to solve a crime because no one was trying to do anything criminal here and more like a um, simulation debriefer uh, handling a difficult uh, debrief, trying to figure out why someone, you know, one of your, uh, you know, uh, comrades, your your work colleagues, uh, how did how 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 did someone who I know knows their stuff, how did this go wrong? What what am I missing here? Um, so that's the attitude you've got to go in with. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Dr. George Duros on listening up for safety. I hope you enjoyed it. Please note this is one of a four-part series and I hope you listen to the other three segments as Dr. George Duros takes us on a journey exploring his passion for patient safety and talks about how human factor science has supported his work in improving M&Ms. This four-part series includes conversations around 
the importance of building an understanding around error and moving up from speaking up for safety to listening up for safety to enable learning from clinicians who are doing the work and understand the system firsthand. I hope you enjoy the remainder of the series. I'm Debbie Draby from the Clinical Excellence Commission, and I'm pleased that you can join us in this conversation with senior leaders um, as they explore the guiding principles of effective morbidity and mortality meetings in action. This podcast series has been developed to explore the experiences and insights from leading M&M meetings. Look out for more podcasts as we continue this conversation with clinicians as they share their journey and learning. I hope you find it useful. And if you'd like to contribute to this conversation, please let me know. Thank you.